All right, well, Happy New Year, first of all, right? It's the second day of the new year, and uh, coming into it, right, uh, Will had informed me that he would be on vacation, so I would be teaching um, uh, in, the, in the new year, so that was a, a bit of a, a little shocker, you know, um, but that's fine, that's fine. Um, but uh, doing the first uh, New Year's kind of service, you know, you kind of think to yourself, oh, what's, what's one of those like New Year's resolution things or whatever? But not really a New Year's resolution thing, um, really something that should be kind of consistently in our lives is what we're going to focus in on today, um, something that Jesus has called us to uh, since, you know, forever. <laughs> so uh, we're going to look together at John 13 and what Jesus has for us there, and what he calls his disciples to, and we're going to uh, have that kind of be, hopefully, our focus for 20, 2022 as we go forward, and, and what, we, what we desire to be pleasing to him. So John 13, very famous chapter, very famous chapter. It's the, towards the end of Jesus' life, his last, really, uh, evening um, on the earth there. Now he's having the final supper, and then uh, we have this scene of him washing the disciples' feet. And uh, before we read the whole thing, towards the uh, end here in verse 30, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus' call for us here as the kind of highest recognition of those who are disciples of Christ, those who do follow him, is this call to love, right? And that that would be the chief characteristic by which we would be distinguished as followers of Christ. And he doesn't just call us to do that and then just say, do that thing, Right, um, he he's given us here. We go back real quick into verse fifteen, and he says, "For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you." All right, so uh, the Lord is really gracious in that way that he never really tells us something to do, with also explaining what it is that he wants, how it should be done the mindset and the motivation behind it and all of those things. So, as Jesus has called us to be those who are characterized by love, we're going to see here in John 13 that he gives us all of the tools necessary for that call, right? Both by his example and by the words that are stated. And so we're going to read John 13, and hopefully uh, we'll understand what it is that Jesus has for us. So... John 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus, he's calling them to love, and he gives an example, a very practical, a very real example of the love that he's calling them to. Right, and there are some distinguishing features about what Jesus does. First of all, as he says here, this is an example. The word there is a pattern or a mold. He's not saying, go and wash people's feet. Like He's not saying, oh, my thing for you to do in order for people to know that you are my disciples is that you're these weird people who walk around and wash people's feet. Like, No, that's not what he's calling us to. Right? It is a pattern, and so what we're going to do is we're going to examine in the action the things that can be patterned after. Right? What is it about what he's doing that uh, relates to what we can do? And, uh, I mean, you can wash people's feet, but it contextually is not going to really have the same effect because here, when he's washing the disciples' feet, it is a common day practice, and it is reserved for the lowest servants to do. We don't really have that common day practice or servants, so this is really, it would be kind of a pointless act in that sense um, to do. <clears throat> but in order to understand, first of all, what he's doing, we're going to explore the, the, the word itself. So the word that Jesus uses here is the word agapao. That's at the beginning here when it says that he loved them to the end, right? It's agapao, which is the verb form of the word agape, which has very few uses outside of biblical context. In, in, in the Greek context, there, there's, you're not going to find outside Greek literature that uses this word, right? And so it's very difficult to ascertain its meaning from, like, let's say, other uses and, and try to implant that meaning into here. So you have to go through the biblical text to understand what it's saying. But in contrast, it is not another Greek word that is often used in the sense of love, uh, and used in extra-biblical ways. Uh, So the word phileo is the Greek word that is kind of that highest love that the world had kind of spoken of. Aristotle mentions it and describes it in his Nicomachean Ethics. You can read that for fun. You can read uh, (laughs) uh, his rhetoric as well. Um, I once read Plato's Republic, not for a book report, surprisingly. And that was boring. Um, so, <laughs> um, so if you uh, like doing that kind of thing, you can read those two books. But in there, he describes phileo kind of love. And uh, in combining the two and kind of what you get from, from those, he, 
describes phileo as that sensation that is often practiced between two young lovers, lifelong friends, fellow soldiers, or brethren, right? So it's this, this mutual feeling of interest, compatibility, and the idea of getting along with each other. There is a mutual benefit associated with the relationship, and each one enjoys the other. Right? And so this is that phileo kind of love, and it really was one of the higher ethics, if not the highest ethic, that Aristotle himself would be writing about. And yet this is not the kind of word that is used in this, in this uh, phrase here. Right? So we're talking about something that supersedes and exceeds that, because the word phileo does appear in the Bible, but it is not used to describe God's love. Right? And so this is, a, in that sense, a lesser form than what is intended when, uh, when John uses the word that Jesus loved them to the end here. And so this forces us to confront the fact that this love that he's calling us to is beyond the sensation and feelings that we have. Right? It doesn't suppress those things, and it is not in... In, uh, it is not without those, but it is superlative to them, right? That it exceeds those and uh, controls, in a sense, those things. That it is, it is more than just having a chemical imbalance in your, in your body that makes you feel like you like somebody, right? It's more than just asking you to be affectionate towards another person. It's, it's not that. Right? And uh, so to uh, see kind of its other uses, it is exclusively used um, to describe God's love in the New Testament and to all the instances where Jesus calls us to love one another or to love God. It's the word agape there. That doesn't give us too much help other than telling us that that's what we should be doing. Right? But there are other uses, six times that it's used in the context of a person's life through the Gospels. Uh, specifically, there are two instances when we see it describing Jesus and the action that he takes. So in Mark 10, 21, we see that Jesus loves the rich young ruler who comes towards him and asks him about what he must do to inherit life. And it says that he loved him and then proceeded to tell him that he had to sell all of his goods, right? which for us is like pretty difficult to hear. It's like, that doesn't sound like the loving thing to say. Like normally, if you're like, man, I love you. You should, you know, live a comfortable life, have good possessions, those things. But Jesus loved him and told him to give up something. You know, like, so there's, there's that. Jesus, again, in John 11, <clears throat> he's got some really great friends of his, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. These are very close friends of Jesus. He visits them often. Lazarus becomes sick, sick even, as, we'll, as you find out in the chapter, sick unto death. Now, Jesus receives word about them and about Lazarus being sick, and it says that he loved Lazarus and waited, right? <laughs> right? So again, normally you'd be like, man, I heard my friend was sick. I'm going to go visit him because I love him. Right? And uh, Jesus does this very surprising instance of agape love, and he says, I love him, and I'm going to wait. Right? And uh, so that's surprising, to say the least, that this, this love is tied to those two instances in Jesus' life. Three, uh, uh, four other instances, two of which are positive, two of which are negative, occur through the Gospels. Uh, in Luke 7, 
We meet the centurion who loved Israel and who exercised faith in the Lord, and it describes him as one who loved Israel and built them a synagogue. Right, and this is the same word agape there. And then in Luke 7, again, towards the end at 47, uh, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, and uh, he's uh, having dinner with him. In the middle of this scene, a woman enters, weeping. She knows that she is a sinner. She comes to Jesus' feet, worships him, cries, and washes his feet with her tears. Right? And the Pharisees and people are very judgmental, and they're thinking amongst themselves, if Jesus knew who this was, he wouldn't let that be. Jesus confronts them, knowing their thoughts, and he says this parable about being forgiven much dead. And at the end, he asks the Pharisee about, <clears throat> about the meaning of the parable that he's just shared. And he says, well, who's going to love the, the master who forgave the debt more? Is it going to be somebody who owed a lot or a little? He says, well, I suppose the one who owed a lot. And he's like, you have rightly said, and he comments on the woman. And he says, you know, she was forgiven much and she loves much, right? So he who has forgiven much loves much. Same kind of word again for, for agape there. And, and so in both of those instances, so now we're moving away from the person of Jesus, you see that both parties in that, that the love that they exercise drives them to an action which has no uh, immediate benefit towards them, right? A centurion building a synagogue is not really for himself, right? A woman crying at Jesus' feet in a public setting, well, that is pretty... Uh, what you would normally call very inappropriate in a, in a normal setting, which is why they, they, she didn't care. It was, it was a sacrifice in that sense on her part. The two other instances that we read of agape as describing somebody who's doing something uh, are in Luke eleven forty three when Jesus is pronouncing woes on the Pharisees, and he says, woe to the Pharisees who love the best seats in the synagogue. Right, that they are, that their desire and their passion, and basically what they're willing to sacrifice for, is to have this high name, this best seat in the synagogue. And then again in John twelve forty three, this was a time when many people were coming to believe upon the name of Jesus. Um, his fame was spreading, and many people were like, "Yeah, Jesus is the guy." And um, it says that even many rulers were believing upon him, but they did not confess for fear of being kicked out of the synagogue because they loved the praise of men, right? And so we, all, we see something pretty interesting here in those uses about the word agape is that as it describes a person, it, it not only entails, uh, let's say, a feeling or a thought, but an action, right? And, and we get more of this understanding if we realize that the word agape is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. It is used to translate the word chesed in, in the Hebrew, is translated into agape to describe God's love. And Jewish scholars describing uh, this word chesed, uh, one such, his name is Daryl Bach, he writes that it wraps up every positive attribute of God. In short, it is all of the acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond any requirements of duty. Right? So it is, it is this kind of love that is 
always coupled with action. You cannot separate hesed from a thought and an action. It's not one or the other. It is coupled together. You don't have it if it's not also followed by the things that you do, right? And so our best attempt then at reducing that to, to what some kind of workable phrase for us to think about um, is to say that this agape love that he's calling us to is a self-determined evaluation of another person or thing such that you are motivated to give the best available resources that you possess to give the highest possible benefit for that person. Right? Now, in the negative con- connotation that we saw with the two, that means that the thing that they were loving the most was themselves, and they were willing to sacrifice anything for their own self-pleasure, right? But in the positive connotation, thinking of God's love for us, it means that he is willing to hold nothing back in order to give us the highest benefit, right? And so what Jesus is calling us to here then, and what we'll see in the action that he does as an example for us, is that he does just that is that he takes the best of what he has to give us the best possible benefit, right? And that this is what he then patterns for us to be an example in. And first of all, note, as we said, this supersedes how you feel about the person, right? That deciding, because it is an intentional act of the will, that deciding to take the best of what you have in order to give the best to another is independent, or at least it's called to be, independent of what you think of that person. So, let's look at the interaction. Jesus, he girds himself, and there are three things that uh, I note about how he does what he does. Right? So he girds himself, he takes up a, a basin, he begins washing the disciples' feet. Right? And again, so this was kind of hinted at, but the first thing about the kind of love that he's calling us to is that it is directional. That is that it is not inwardly and uh, uh, focused. It is not self-focused, but that it is externally focused and directed towards others. Right? That there, it is impossible to exercise agape love for yourself. Right, you, the, the love that God calls us to is not a self-love. It is not something that is looking to please yourself. Its entire mission, its entire focus is directed outwards towards the benefit of the recipient of that love, right? And this challenges us in the, in the face of our current culture, and we probably might be, it might have been every culture at every time, right? But... We hear pretty commonly such phrases as, well, you need to first love yourself before you can love others. You need to serve yourself before you can serve others. This is not a biblical thought. This is not what Jesus has called us to. There is no place in the Bible where you will find that Jesus' call is for self-love. Right? As a matter of fact, Jesus' assumption, the Bible's assumption, and it's not an assumption if it's in the Bible, it's truth, right? is that you love yourself. Right? The command to love one another, what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment after loving the Lord your God? He says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Not, he doesn't say love yourself and then think about that for a second and then like love. No, no, no. He's like, you already love yourself. Right? 
And, and you know, you might think to yourself, oh, but Justin, I'm so upset with myself all the time. I hate who I've become, blah, 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 right? Not to, not to put that down. <laughs> Struggling with that, we can talk more in a serious way about that later, right? But, but, you know, one of the simplest instances of you demonstrating that you truly do love yourself is if you're like me and you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you go, wow. I look hideous, right? <laughs> right? Something needs to be done, right? Because I can't exit my, my, my house in this state. It's just bad for everybody, right? Why do I do that? Why do I do that? Because I have an expectation and a love for myself. And I don't want who I am to be presented to you as something less than what I think, right? And so we do... We do the thing. We, if you're a girl, you know, you put on the makeup, your stuff, you want to try to make yourself look good. If you're a guy, you barely breathe and you're like, ah, I think I'm okay. And you walk out, you know, <laughs> right? You're like, the shirt smells nice. We're okay. I'm out of here. Um, but you have this concern for yourself already, right? You, you do what's necessary. You make sacrifices to take care of yourself. When you find out one day, like, like me, like I used to, I was 170 pounds when I got married. I am so far away from 170 pounds, right? I, I look at that and I'm like, I'm disappointed, right? And I'm like, but I don't just sit there and go, oh, I hate myself, so I'm just gonna keep myself like this, right? No, I, I decide to do something about it because I do love myself, right? But this is, not how agape love works. It's not about you loving yourself, right? You, the, the love that he's calling us to is entirely focused outwardly, which means that it works and it acts in such a way that does not care about the effects on yourself. You see, the sacrifice to which it's willing to go is independent of how it affects you. Jesus was obedient how far? All the way to death, right? He was obedient to death. That's a different kind of love, right? Because he was obedient to death, it says in Romans 5, right? It says some people might even die for somebody they think is good, right? And we might do that, right? You're like, oh, that's a nice person. Oh, my family, I'm gonna die for my family. I'll die for my wife, for my, whatever. Jesus the love of God is demonstrating that while we were sinners, Christ died. Who does that, right? Who dies for somebody who is in active rebellion against you, who has no concern for you, right? Who does that? Only Jesus, right? So this is what he's calling us to, a love that is entirely outwardly directed. Uh, the act that he takes here, it, it has no benefit to him. He is washing their feet, uh, secondly, we see that the love that he is uh, expressing, it is invitational. The action that he takes, he does not force any of the disciples to partake in this. We can see that in the interaction with Peter. Because Peter questions him at first, and he says, what are you doing? And, and so J Jesus lets him know, I need to wash your feet. And, and he says, don't do it. Now, Jesus doesn't agree with that, but he doesn't just ignore him and force him to, he leaves the choice with him, doesn't he? He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. It's still on Peter to decide to let uh, Jesus wash his feet. 
You know, and this is an important and another difficult part about the love that he calls us to, is that it is invitational. It is not forceful, right? We look and, and oftentimes, you know, you think of kids that you have, and when they're younger, they, they do really harmful things because they're, everything can hurt a child, <laughs> you know, like running out into a street, touching a stove. Uh, I remember uh, my <clears throat> I took uh, my nieces to a to a park. Well, actually, I wasn't around. Um, that was the problem. Um, <laughs> um, uh, my wife is pretty pregnant. We're having our firstborn in, in about a month, so praise the Lord for that. Um, but uh, she took them to the park while I was doing some work, and um, so then she told me this story afterwards. Now the girls love going to the park. They love climbing things. If you've seen them, they're not very large people, right? So climbing can be a pretty dangerous activity, um, particularly since they're also not the most coordinated people that you can meet. Um, so Addie, bless her little heart, um, she's a, she loves climbing. And so my wife, she's short and pregnant, so like catching a child while they're falling is like out of the picture, right? That's not really an idea that uh, you have in mind. So the stipulation was if you're going to go to the park with Auntie, it's going to be that you keep it chill, right? Because she can't protect you in the sense like I'll catch the girls, I'll carry them around, whatever, you know? Well, Addie's like, yeah, I got it. And of course, you know, when you're like four, you don't really like, it doesn't click in your head what's being told to you. So uh, she gets to the monkey bars thing, and, she, and, and, and Auntie's like, hey, you know, be careful, be careful. You know, I can't catch you. She's like, it's okay, I got it. She jumps, misses entirely, just face down, right, right in the dirt. There's tears. You know, it's, it is what it is. Anyway, all of that to say, sometimes, you know, we're used to the fact that you do enforce your love, right? That you're like, I, I want to protect you, and I want to force my hand in this situation because it's for your betterment, right? But look, this agape love is invitational. This agape love, it sits in the very difficult place of presenting a choice to its recipient and letting that person make that choice. And that's some of the hardest things that you can do. I've watched, I've taught for 10 years uh, high school ministry, done high school ministry, and, and I've watched many come and go who at one time or another, they, they, they come to the faith, they express a desire in the faith, and then they walk away. And, and you do your best, you, you advise, you do the thing, right? You, you show love, you communicate, you're there, present, you're trying, all of these things, and, and still somebody makes their choice, right? And, and at the end of the day, that's, that's what it comes down to. Even Christ, who has paid for all, Right, that that First John two, or actually one, leading into two, talks about how he's the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also the whole world. He did it for everyone, but not everyone receives. Right, and we have to sit in that tension, right, and let that tension be what it is as we pour out this love. He continues on, and in this we also see that Jesus takes the time in the middle of doing the action that he uh, speaks the truth, right? And so this love is also conversational, right? And, and I say this because this is the part 
of the Christian love of what God calls us to that is very, very much so exclusive to Christianity, right? Because, look, you can go out there and you can find people who want to do nice things, right? You're like, oh, it's nice to do this thing or that thing. It's nice to, to give to charity or whatever. But, you know, even 1 Corinthians 13, if you recall, says you could speak with the tongues of angels, don't have love, you're just a sounding brass. You could give your body to be burned. You can give to cheer. You don't have love. Nothing. Right? What does he mean? Does he mean do I, if I have sentiment towards another person when I do these, that that's what it's about? No, no, no. It's right here. It's about this conversation. Because love, as we said about agape, it's you taking the best of what you have available to give the highest benefit to somebody. And let me... Let us challenge you with this. What is the highest benefit for anyone? Right? The greatest need is Christ. The greatest need is Christ. Look, you can spend your time doing all of the acts, all of the service, washing people's feet, helping them out. Become a doctor. You know, heal people. Start businesses. Do all of those things whatever the Lord leads you to do. But if all you're doing is doing the action without the hope that it is also speaking about the gospel, you are doing nothing. You are doing nothing, right? Look, again, back to the children thing. It's great to have goals for your children. It's great to want to see them succeed in the things that they do. It's, it's great to desire for them to, you know, possibly live a comfortable life in those kinds of things, right? That that. You know, as a parent, like, who wouldn't? Nobody wants to see their kid in a gutter, right? Like, you know, nobody wants to see that, right? But look, if, if your kid has a comfortable life and is following their passion in a job that they like or whatever, but they don't know the love of God and Christ for them, then none of it matters, right? None of it matters. Our actions, when they are in this agape love, they are for the highest benefit, which means that our intent and our desire is that what we do speaks of who God is. It doesn't have to be that every conversation you have is a gospel presentation, right? It doesn't have to be that, don't be that guy who just like walks up, hi, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus today. Like, no, you don't have to do that, right? But we do equip ourselves daily with the mindset Ephesians 6 calls it that our feet are prepared with the gospel of peace, right? That that's the armor that we put on, that where we go is where the demonstration of God's love goes, right? Uh, Just to finish up on that point, turn with me to 1 Peter 3, because this just means that it's in everything that we do and in every circumstance that we are looking to have it be a point of conversation of the Lord. So 1 Peter 3, he's speaking to uh, believers who are scattered, who are having a really difficult time because they're being persecuted by the Roman Empire and they can't even stay in the regions that they're in, so they're spread all throughout. He calls it the dispersion, as he writes in 1 Peter 1, when he says who the letter is to, those who are part of the dispersion. And when he gets to 1 Peter 3, he has given examples of how to suffer appropriately because they are suffering so he's writing a book to them about like well what do we do with the fact that we're suffering and in general you can see that basically the exhortation is that hey Jesus suffered you're going to suffer stick it out 
you know? Like, that's, that's kind of the general theme. It's like, Jesus suffered, you're going to suffer, so just keep going, right? And he does so, then, and he gives three specific uh, contexts where uh, that suffering will be evident and how they should respond in that suffering, right? So one is the master-slave, Right, if you have a bad master and you're a slave, he says, just endure it because it is better for you to suffer for doing right than for doing evil. Right, he says, if you're a wife and you have a husband who doesn't obey the Lord, then silently uh, endure and and be a good example unto him. And you know, a husband, if you have a wife who is uh, not following the Lord, then you lovingly dwell with her with understanding. Right, that that you have all of these things where it basically seems like the call is to is to do nothing, and it's very different than what the world would say to do. The world is very much so. We know, we know, we have experience in the world. We understand that the world is very much stand your ground, fight for your rights, do your thing, make sure your voice is heard. That's what the that's what the world wants us to do, right? But the love calls them to do something different because in doing something different, it opens up 1 Peter 3, which says here in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Always be ready to give a defense. That is a reason. The word defense means reason there. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Right? That the actions we do are for the purpose of a communication of a hope. Right? And that we must be driven in our love that what God is calling us to is to take every action that we do and have it geared towards that end, that it is an opportunity for another human being to meet with God, right? So this kind of love then, agape, Jesus demonstrates it back in John 13. It's directional, it's invitational, and it's conversational, and it's impossible, right? It's impossible, Right? Who can wake up every day with the intent that all that they do is geared towards the communication of the gospel and God's love? Who can wake up and not give a thought to yourself and, and, and instead direct all of your energies towards serving others? And who can live in that tension of letting people make their choices in the face of that. Like, who, who can possibly do that? Nobody can. Nobody can. You see, Jesus often calls us to these things that are absolutely impossible for us to do. And the reason is, is because they're not for us to do, but for Christ to do through us. Right? It's for Christ to do through us. And the way that we do it with Christ doing it through us is by being led by his Spirit. Right now, the work of the Spirit, evident in John 14 and in John 16, is to guide us into all truth, to pour out the love of God into our hearts, and to remind us of the things that we have in Christ, right? And so, we see here in the passage, uh, in John 13, that Jesus does indeed have four things in mind given to him by the Spirit, being a man, being fully man, fully God, he does, he is operating in the power of the Spirit, and there are four things that the Spirit puts into Jesus' mind that empower him in his action of love here, right? John gives us insight in verse one. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The first thing that Jesus understood was that his hour had come. He knew what time it was, right? And guys, by the Spirit of God, in his word, 
we know what hour it is. It is not the day of vengeance. It is not the day of judgment. It is not the day for self-pleasure. It is the day of salvation, right? First Peter, again, talking about suffering, he says we've spent enough time pleasing ourselves, right? We're done with that, right? Ephesians 5, it tells us we have to redeem the time, right? We know the hour. And guys, the hour is late. It's the last days. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. Guys, it's late in the day, and people don't know the love of God. And it just gets later and later. It should impress upon us this sense of urgency, this understanding of what time is it? It is time to share the good news. You know. The second thing that he has in mind in verse 2, he says, uh, well, let me go down to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Right? Jesus understood that all authority was his. Right? And you might look at that and you might say to yourself, well, yeah, he's Jesus. Of course, all authority is his. You know, he's, he's God. Right? But here's the thing. We are co-heirs with Christ. The authority that, that was given to him, where he was raised, we are raised to in Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean that we run around and forcefully assert God's, God's ways upon people? No, no, no. That's not what that means at all. Because Jesus didn't do that. Right? Jesus used all authority to serve. Right? And so what it means, though, is that everything is a tool for the glorification of God. Every good thing, every bad thing, every circumstance that you enjoy, every circumstance that you hate, it's still a tool for you to use for the glorification of God. Philippians 1, Paul is in jail writing to the uh, Philippian church, and he's writing it primarily to thank them for their gift and to encourage them that he's fine where he is. And the reason he says that, one of the reasons he gives is that he knows that he's going to be delivered, whether by life or by death, he says. He says, for I am confident that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether I live or die. Right? Everything is his tool for the glorification of God. All things are under him. Guys, you don't have to fear any circumstance, any loss, or anything like that, because if God has allowed it to be present in your life, he's allowed it because you can use it to glorify him. Thirdly, Jesus has in mind here, he says he, uh, he knew that he came from God, right? that he came from God. Look, if you come from somewhere, and particularly knowing that he came from God, Jesus expressed himself. What did he say? I don't do anything of my own authority, but what the Father says, that I do, right? Jesus knew he had a mission. Jesus knew he had a purpose, Right? This stands in stark contrast to what the world calls us to. This is why it is a spiritual thing. The world's like, go find your purpose, go make your purpose, go whatever. Right? We are sent by God the Father. Right? We're sent by Jesus. Jesus himself says it at the end. Uh, right here he says, uh, Most surely I say to you, servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. He's the one sending us. We know where we come from. It means we have a purpose. It means we have a mission. It means that we, we're not wondering what should I do with life. We're wondering how do I do what Jesus wants me to do with life, right? Like we know what we're about. And so we have to keep that in mind as we do press forward, right? And then finally, the thing that he has in mind as well is that he knows that he is going to God, that he had come from God and that he was going to God. 
And look, we have a secure end in Christ. We have an absolutely secure end. You know, in Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus, that he defeated death with death, that he might free those who were under bondage to the fear of death, right? If you guys have ever seen the movie Interstellar, has anybody seen the movie Interstellar? Okay, my man, okay. (laughs) Right, there's a scene in there when Matt Damon comes up, and by the way, when Matt Damon shows up in the movie, you're like, I didn't know he was in this movie. He just like appears, and you're like, what the heck? Anyway, um, when he appears, and he has this whole long uh, diatribe about why he's doing what he's doing, because he's betraying everybody, um, basically, in in the movie. And he talks about the survival instinct. Right, and he talks about the need for a man to survive, and he'll do anything to survive. And you know, apart from Christ, that is absolutely a true statement. That men do the most heinous, vile things just to survive. Right? That the thought of death drives us to the craziest of actions. but we're so free in Christ that even death has no sting. You can still serve God in the face of death. Right? You know where you're going. As a matter of fact, death is your welcomed end. Right? Paul said, for me to die is gain. Right? He even further said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 5. It's really a great chapter. Um, He says that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, and we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Guys, we're, we're so free. Do you see what the Spirit has done? Do you see what God has done in giving us these truths in Christ? Is that the love that He calls us to is no longer impossible, because you have no fear of death. You have no fear of loss. You have no confusion about what you should be about, right? He's cleared it all up and given it to you in Christ through his spirit, and so you are now free to serve. You are free to serve. When you were in sin, you know, we talk about the freedom that's offered in Christ. You were not free to be pleasing to the Lord. You had, you had no tools available to you to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord. But God saved us for a purpose, and the purpose he saved us for, we'll see it when we get in Ephesians 2, He's created us. We are his workmanship created for good works. He's done something new to make us, as 1 Peter 2 tells us, a people zealous for good works. Guys, we have so much freedom in Christ to be able to serve to the degree that he wants us to because by his spirit, he empowers us with all of the truth that we need in order to do so. You know, so as we finish up, there are two more things that we have to keep in mind as we do serve, as we do follow Jesus' command to love in this way. The first is to note uh, the two recipients um, that are highlighted uh, in this passage of that love. One is Judas and one is Peter. We already kind of spoke about this, but Judas makes his decision, right? He still goes on, he makes his decision, he does the, the money exchange and everything, and eventually he, he kills himself, right? 
And look, we have to live with that tension. But another truth to take from that is that our love is not exclusionary, even to those who will never receive it, right? Like, it is not for you to decide whether or not you're going to love somebody. It's for you to decide how you're going to express God's love to that person, right? It's also not for you to worry or to beat yourself up about the result, right? Because First <clears throat> Corinthians, First Corinthians 2, Paul is writing and he's dressing some stuff to the Corinthian church, and one of the things that they're having particular trouble with is that some of them think Paul is really cool and some of them think Apollos is really cool, right? And uh, so they're like, man, Paul's terrible and so we hate him. And so the, anybody who follows Paul isn't really a Christian, you know? And Paul's like, who, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We are but fellow workers, right? He's like, one plants, one sows, one, one distributes, whatever, right? He says, but it is God who gives the increase, we're also not those who determine the increase, right? So, so that means you don't get to decide to love based on your analysis of how effective you think it's going to be, right? It's not about you analyzing and being like, this is not going to work out, so I'm not going to do it. No, because the increase isn't for you to, to provide or to be concerned with. Yours is to just do, right? The final thing that we'll cover is Peter himself. So Peter has a response to uh, Jesus here uh, as Jesus calls them to this love and Jesus identifies his betrayer, um, which they don't catch um, in, in the passage. And typically when you begin saying somebody is going to not be good, everybody else begins asserting, hey, I'm the good guy, so it's not going to be me, right? So that's what they do. They fight about, you know, who's greatest because when, when there's the threat of one of us is not good, you're like, no, it's not me. I'm, I'm good. It must be, you know, like Timmy because he's like, he's terrible. Look at him, you know? Um, but Peter, he has a really poor self-evaluation of himself. Because Jesus says, you're going to betray me. And, and Peter's like, no, I'm going to follow you to the death. Right? In a parallel passage, he says, even if all of them do, I'm still going to follow you. And we know how the story ends. Jesus knew how the story was going to go too. He, he didn't. He didn't. Right? In the face of a little servant girl, he denied the Lord. Right. But after that, Jesus meets with him in John 21. If you'll turn there, we'll close. Right. In John 21, Jesus meets with him and he has this scene after the resurrection. And he asks Peter about this love that Peter supposedly has for him. And, and what's not caught in the way that it's translated here because we have just the one word for love is that it's an interplay between the words agape and phileo that we discussed, right? That Jesus first confronts him twice and says, do you agape me, right? And, and Peter responds, Lord, I phileo you. So Peter still, he's like, I, I don't have that love for you, God, right? He's like, I don't. He's, he's done pretending that he's gonna follow Jesus like to the death, you know, like he's like, I don't who's to say if I can do that, right? But I, 
I have this brotherly, affectionate kind of love for you, you know? And then Jesus, the third time, asks him, do you have this brotherly, affectionate kind? He asks him about, do you have phileo love? And says here that Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me, right? He was grieved because Jesus had lowered it and asked him about even this part, right? And then he, he concludes and he's like, you know. You see, he's done making assertions about how much he loves the Lord. Peter is to the point where he's like, I don't, I don't know if I love you the way that I should, right? And here's the reality, is that we must also come to that place, right? Because the, the manifestation of God's love, God's agape love through us is only done by receiving it for us in him first. Not by asserting that we already have it and that we can do it. Right? Because the reality is, like Peter, you don't love God that much. You really don't. You love yourself a lot. You love other things. The world tempts you. All of these things. But you know what is beautiful about what happens here between Peter and Jesus? is Jesus says three times in all three, he tells him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. What is he doing? Well, keep serving me anyway. You don't love me that much. That's okay, Peter. I love you, so keep serving. You know, so we must embrace this mindset as we press forward into what God has called us to do because it's the only power that we have. The, the power is in knowing that God still loves you, right? The power to keep going forward, to wake up every day in the face of your failure, in the face of your inconsistency is to wake up and say, God, you still want me to serve even though I'm not that in love with you, but you love me, I'm gonna keep going, right? So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We do praise you for your love, for your goodness, your kindness, your grace towards us. Lord, we confess that we are weak. And so, Lord, we just, we just ask you to fill us with your spirit, to remind us daily of your love, empower us, conform us to the image of your son. Lord, we praise you for your love. We can do nothing but sit and wonder at the greatness of, of the love that you have. Empower us to be those who do Walk out and share that kind of love, Lord, by your spirit, by your power, with you by our sides always, Lord. We thank you, we love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.